Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 23rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. is preparing to lift its ban on the sale of offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. Russian drones make a rare breach of Kyiv's missile defenses. Protests flare in Argentina over Millet's austerity measures. The UN Security Council finally passes a Gaza resolution after several days of delay. Washington and Beijing resume high-level military dialogue. Ireland is taking the UK to court over its Troubles amnesty law. The U.S. is charging an alleged Hezbollah member over a 1994 bombing in Buenos Aires. The U.S. Supreme Court declines to hear Trump's January 6th immunity case. Rudy Giuliani declares bankruptcy. And Joe Biden commutes 11 drug sentences and pardons marijuana offenders. In our top story, the U.S. prepares to lift a ban on sales of offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times. Deccan Herald, and News Globe Online. U.S. officials announced on Thursday that the Biden administration is getting ready to loosen restrictions on some arms shipments to Saudi Arabia. Officials attributed this change to the kingdom's recent peace negotiations with Yemen's Houthis in an effort to cement a truce. In 2021, U.S. President Joe Biden enforced a ban due to worries that U.S. weapons were being used against civilians in Yemen, where a coalition led by Saudi Arabia is fighting the Iran-backed Houthis, resulting in mass casualties from the conflict, disease, and starvation. Saudi Arabia, the country that purchases the most weapons from the U.S., has been trying to lift the U.S. offensive weapons ban as it attempts to complete a peace agreement with the Houthis. The Houthis have garnered global attention recently after they fired drones and missiles at commercial ships in the Red Sea disrupting international trade and forcing the world's largest shipping companies to divert their vessels from Yemen to pressure Israel to end its military campaign in Gaza. Speaking under anonymity, Saudi officials stated that if the conflict with the Houthis were to escalate, Saudi Arabia must be able to defend its southern border with Yemen. The officials suggested that the kingdom's other goal is to make the case that it needs to be ready to deal with rising regional tensions brought on by the ongoing Gaza conflict. Some legislators in the U.S. House of Representatives may object to Biden's proposed policy change following Saudi Arabia's agreement to reduce its oil production along with that of Russia and other oil-producing countries. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee placed its own embargo on military sales to Saudi Arabia in October 2022. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and now our first narrative spin is the pro-establishment narrative from the New York Times. If the ongoing peace talks with the Houthi group in Yemen result in an end to the eight-year-old brutal conflict, then easing limitations on arms sales to Saudi Arabia could be a good thing. The geopolitical landscape would change with a peace deal, emphasizing the need to arm Saudi Arabia with weapons to protect itself against Iran, which is a rising regional power. Saudi Arabia needs to rearm itself along its southern border to be able to defend itself in the event that there are any future disputes with the Houthis, would also demonstrate to the kingdom that the U.S. is a reliable strategic ally. The establishment critical narrative comes from Human Rights Watch. President Biden pledged that human rights would be given first priority in U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia. Human Rights Watch and other rights groups have recorded war crimes committed by Saudi Arabia and the UAE against Yemeni civilians since the start of the conflict in 2015. 
Removing the ban on offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia would be a step backward for the White House and a declaration to the international community that the U.S. is not very concerned about human rights. Rather than easing sanctions, the Biden administration should push for the creation of an accountability body in the U.N. that would look into infractions and assist with any future prosecutions. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 36% chance that Saudi Arabia will establish diplomatic relations with Israel before January 20th of 2025. And the battle rages in Ukraine as Russian drones breach Kyiv's missile defenses. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukranska Pravda, Kyiv Post, France 24, Politico, and Reuters. Amid reports suggesting that Ukraine's missile defense stockpiles are running low, Russia launched yet another wave of kamikaze drones at Kyiv and other Ukrainian regions in the early hours of Friday. The attack was the sixth to target the Ukrainian capital this month. Vitaly Klitschko, Kyiv's mayor, said that a drone hit an apartment block south of the city center, triggering a fire that was quickly brought under control. Local officials added that a number of apartments were damaged between the 24th and 26th floors of the building. Two people were injured, one of whom was receiving treatment in the hospital. A number of other buildings across Kyiv and its wider region were also damaged by falling drone debris. The country's air force said it shot down 24 of 28 drones across Kyiv and six other regions of Ukraine. Drone debris was also reported as damaging grain storage facilities in the Odessa region. Meanwhile, a direct hit was recorded at an infrastructure facility in the Mykolaiv region, sparking a fire that's since been extinguished. There were no additional reports of injuries. While Russia has routinely pierced Ukraine's air defenses in other regions of the country, instances in Kyiv have been rare. With drones and missiles all typically shot down, Friday's attack was the first to successfully breach defenses in months. When the war broke out in February 2022, Kyiv had been just as vulnerable as other Ukrainian cities to Russian aerial attacks. However, a flurry of sophisticated missile defense systems were soon provided by countries including the U.S. and Germany making the Ukrainian capital one of the safest places amid the conflict. Low Ukrainian stockpiles and recent attacks risk undermining Kyiv's reputation for safety. However, after attending a meeting with arms manufacturers earlier in the week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that the country's missile defenses will be strengthened with another U.S.-made Patriot system from Germany alongside ammunition from a range of countries coming Ukraine's way early in the new year. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spin is a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from foreign affairs. The impact of the slowdown of Western arms to Ukraine is already being felt on the battlefield and observed in Ukraine's ability to defend itself from Russia's aerial attacks. While military aid is tied up in U.S. Congress, Europe needs to step up and give Ukraine all the weapons it needs. Not just enough to survive, but enough to put Russian President Putin on the back foot and force him into negotiations. Here's the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. Attacks on Ukraine are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks, as well as the mistaken belief being propped up by Western administrations that the country can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. The nerds from Metaculus have a nerd narrative that says there's a 1.5% chance that Russia will annex any part of any Baltic country by the year 2035. News from Argentina as protests continue over Millet's deregulation decree. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Buenos Aires Times, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Merco Press, Economist, and Reason.com. 
Hundreds of Argentines took to the streets nationwide for the second consecutive day on Thursday to rally against deregulatory measures that President Javier Millet announced a day earlier, with clashes between security forces and protesters reported in the central province of Cordoba. The all-around reforms, which are expected to face legal and political challenges, repeal regulations covering the housing rental market and land ownership, eliminate price controls, facilitate exports, and include steps to privatize all state-owned companies. With this sweeping emergency decree, Millet is striving to fulfill his campaign pledge to liberalize the country's economy. Under Argentina's constitution, presidential decrees stay in place until both houses of Congress vote to abolish them. However, an injunction for the decree to be declared unconstitutional has already been filed in federal court. Argentina's General Labor Confederation has called a demonstration for next Wednesday before the main courthouse in Buenos Aires, insisting that the decree must be revoked. Anti-government protests had erupted even before the deregulatory package was announced. Left-wing demonstrators gathered in the central Plaza de Mayo Square, an annual protest each December to remember protesters who died in 2001 and rallied against shock austerity measures that include plans to cut public spending by 3% of gross domestic product. Last week, Security Minister Patricia Bullrich announced a controversial new security protocol to maintain public order during protests, allowing forces to use force to prevent blockades. Despite critics claiming that this could lead to a crackdown on civil society, a recent poll found that two-thirds of those surveyed support the measures. Thanks, Eric. The left narrative comes from The Guardian. Argentina's radical libertarian president is acting as if he were an absolute monarch, unlawfully using the emergency decree to bypass Congress and attack the rights of the working class people. Ordinary citizens are finally waking up to their mistake in supporting his radical austerity platform in the elections. Daily Wire has a right narrative. Argentines have given Millet a clear mandate to liberalize the economy and cut the country's out-of-control public expenditure. And this is exactly what he's done. Yet the very Peronists responsible for Argentina's economic crisis are now trying to create chaos not to allow his administration to get rid of the parasitic state so they can blame liberalism for their own failures. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 25% chance that Argentina fully dollarizes its economy before the year 2028. Next up, the UN Security Council passes a Gaza resolution. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CNN, Unet News, the Associated Press, Al Monitor, and Reuters. The UN Security Council passed a UAE-sponsored resolution on Friday calling for safe, unhindered, and expanded humanitarian access and to create the conditions for a sustainable secession of hostilities, as well as the protection of civilians, calls for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses, and corridors throughout the Gaza Strip for a sufficient number of days. The resolution also called for the release of hostages held in Gaza. The vote passed with two abstentions from the U.S. and Russia. The vote was initially scheduled to be held on Monday, but was delayed four times due to negotiations with the U.S. regarding the resolution's wording and the mechanism for delivering and monitoring humanitarian aid. The U.S., which vetoed a resolution on Gaza earlier this month, argued that a U.N.-created monitoring mechanism for aid delivery would slow the process down, and Israel is currently undertaking monitoring. A U.S. official said that Israel can live with the resolution, and an Israeli official said that Israel was grateful for the U.S. efforts to address the most problematic elements in the proposed resolution, as negotiations between Hamas and Israel over another hostage release deal continue to stall 
Hamas reportedly asked for the release of three prominent Palestinian figures in Israeli detention. The three figures are Marwan Barghati, former Secretary General of the Fatah Movement, who is generally favored by Palestinians to lead the Palestinian Authority after sitting President Mahmoud Abbas. Ahmad Sadat, Security General of the Marxist-Leninist Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And Abdullah Barghati, a Hamas member and former commander of the organization's military wing in the West Bank. The Israeli military announced on Thursday that it is sending ground reinforcements, including combat engineers, to Khan Yunis to target Hamas militants above ground and in tunnels. Israeli bombardment continued across the Strip, including in Rafah. Fighting in the north of the Strip also continued, with Israeli forces saying this week they were in the final stages of clearing out militants in the area. Israeli forces on Friday expanded their operations in Gaza, calling for residents in al Barij and the center of the Strip to flee south signaling that they will advance into the area soon. Residents have not immediately heeded the warning en masse as of yet, though it's unclear how many still remain. Residents reported that Israeli tanks had fired on the eastern areas of al Barij. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 20,000 people in the Gaza Strip, including 8,000 children. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Thanks for laying out the facts, Scott. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from CNN. Though, of course, Israel has a right to dismantle Hamas's military capabilities, it must wage this war in a humane way. The amount of civilians being killed will only galvanize Palestinians' peace and push them into the arms of Hamas. A more thorough and surgical campaign is now needed to eliminate Hamas's leadership in Gaza, as Israel is losing global support. We have a pro-Israel narrative from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Though it seems that the Biden administration wants to pressure Israel into a ceasefire, Israel must push back against such short-sighted thinking. Israel is a sovereign country and has the right to defend itself from terrorism and pursue its own interests. Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated so that the group can never launch a terrorist attack like October 7th again. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and clearly wants to make the Gaza Strip unlivable. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. And the nerd narrative from Attaculus, there's a 35% chance that at least 500,000 Palestinians will be displaced from Gaza before December 31st, 2025. The U.S. and China resume top-level military dialogue. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Voice of America, France 24, Daily Caller, South China Morning Post, and Financial Times. Following a recent agreement between President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping to resume military-to-military -military ties, the U.S. and the PRC's top military officials held talks on Thursday for the first time in over a year. During their virtual meeting, Joint Chiefs of Chairman Charles Q. Brown and General Liu Zhenli of China's People's Liberation Army reportedly discussed the need for cooperation to, quote, responsibly manage competition avoid miscalculations, and maintain open and direct lines of communication. Both military officials further discussed a range of, quote, global and regional security issues, with Brown stressing the importance of the Chinese army, quote, engaging in substantive dialogue to reduce the likelihood of misunderstandings. 
Brown also called for the resumption of the bilateral talks on defense policy coordination and opening lines of communication for regular contacts between the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and the military leadership of the People's Liberation Army's Eastern and Southern Theater Commands. Beijing had suspended military-to-military talks with the U.S. in August 2022, following then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit. During Thursday's talks, Zhen Li reportedly informed Brown that the PLA would defend its territorial claims on Taiwan, adding that the U.S.'s, quote, correct understanding of China was crucial to restoring stable and sustainable military ties between the two nations. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Washington Post. By resuming high-level military talks with China, the U.S. is yet again demonstrating its goodwill to bring relations with Beijing back on track. However, given recent threats to the U.S. military in the Indo-Pacific and Beijing's attempts to intimidate U.S. allies like the Philippines, not to mention Taiwan, this can only be a first step. The U.S. and the PRC are competitors, but Washington is convinced that dialogue constitutes the basis for peace and international security. It's now up to China to prove that it's serious about reducing bilateral tensions and engaging in constructive dialogue. The establishment critical narrative comes from Global Times. China welcomes the resumption of military high-level talks between the two nations and is willing to engage in a constructive dialogue with the U.S. based on mutual respect. However, Washington can't assert hegemonic claims while pretending to be interested in reducing bilateral tensions. As long as the U.S. isn't prepared to respect China's territorial sovereignty over Taiwan and its maritime rights in the South China Sea, no constructive dialogue will be possible. Washington can't have it both ways and must walk the talk to build healthy relations with China, contributing to international security. And the nerds from Metaculus predict a 15% chance that the U.S. and China will be at war before 2035. Ireland takes the U.K. to court over the Troubles Amnesty Law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by World 101, DW, The Guardian, France 24, and Al Jazeera. Ireland announced legal action against the UK government on Wednesday in response to the controversial Troubles Amnesty Law that gives legal immunity to combatants in the decades-long Northern Ireland conflict. According to Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar, the government would pursue a judicial review of the Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Bill in the European Court of Human Rights, arguing it breached the Convention on Human Rights. The Irish government, Northern Irish political parties, and families of victims killed during the conflict opposed the legislation while groups representing British veterans from the period have expressed support for amnesty. The law, passed in September, offers legal immunity to British soldiers and former Irish paramilitaries, cooperating with a newly created Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. It also prevents future civil lawsuits and legacy inquests. The Troubles conflict in Northern Ireland reportedly cost the lives of more than 3,500 people between the late 1960s and 1998. Nearly 1,200 deaths from the period remain under investigation. While the UK's government legislation is currently being contested by victims' families in the Northern Ireland courts. Thank you, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Al Jazeera. The British government is robbing families of their ability to obtain justice. Thousands of people were murdered and, quote, disappeared during the Troubles. And these families deserve the option to have their day in court. Perpetrators shouldn't be shielded from being held accountable for the serious human rights abuses they committed. Narrative B comes from the Irish Times. The Legacy and Reconciliation Bill is the best way to provide justice and move forward. 
prosecutions for Troubles-era crimes have been largely ineffective. But through a new Truth and Reconciliation Commission, families can receive more information, accountability, and acknowledgement. This legislation is far from perfect, but the conflict is over, and it's time to move forward. Metaculous Prediction Community has a nerd narrative. For this story, it says there's a 33% chance that Northern Ireland will hold a reunification referendum before 2030. The United States charges an alleged Hezbollah member over a 1994 Buenos Aires bombing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CBS, Buenos Aires Times, Al Jazeera, The Times of Israel, and Associated Press. Federal U.S. prosecutors in Manhattan unsealed on Wednesday an indictment against an alleged leader of the Lebanon-based Hezbollah's Islamic Jihad organization, Samuel Salman el Reda who is said to have helped orchestrate the 1994 bombing of a Jewish community center in Buenos Aires, Argentina, that killed 85 people. The 58-year-old dual Colombian Lebanese citizen has been charged with providing material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization, aiding and abetting the receipt of military-style training from a designated foreign terrorist organization and conspiracy counts. The attack on the Mutual Israelite Association of Argentina on July 18, 1994, was the worst in the country's history and the second against the Jewish community in Argentina following the 1992 attack on the Israeli embassy, which left 29 dead and injured over 200. The truck bombing, which the U.S. has long used as an example of Iran-backed Hezbollah's wide reach, despite the group's denying involvement, remains controversial in Argentina. Former President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner has been accused of conspiring to protect its perpetrators by way of a joint probe with Iran. In addition to allegedly transmitting information to operatives that carried out the attack in Buenos Aires, El Reda has also been accused of conspiring to support terrorists in Lebanon, Panama, Peru, Thailand, and elsewhere between 1993 and 2015. The U.S. Department of the Treasury designated Hezbollah as a terrorist organization in 2001 with the U.S. Department of State claiming years later that the militant group was the most technically skilled terrorist group in the world. Gray Zone has the establishment critical narrative. While the U.S. and its allies have long used this bombing as a precedent to demonize and sanction Iran, U.S. diplomats and Argentine police officers involved in the immediate investigation later acknowledged that there was never any evidence linking Tehran. In 2014, a former Argentine spy who had infiltrated the Jewish community claimed that the anti-Semitic police department ordered him to hand over the blueprints to the facility, which suggests this could have been an inside job that was later used by the U.S. and Israel to stoke anti-Iran sentiment for political reasons. Rudy Giuliani files for bankruptcy following a $148 million defamation judgment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, USA Today, Forbes, CBS, and Business Insider. On Thursday, Rudy Giuliani, the former personal lawyer to former U.S. President Donald Trump, filed for bankruptcy in the aftermath of last week's defamation verdict, ordering him to pay $148 million. Ted Goodman, a political advisor to Giuliani, said the filing, quote, should be a surprise to no one, considering the, quote, high punitive amount awarded to two Georgia election workers who received death threats and suffered other harm after Giuliani accused them, without proof, of tampering with the 2020 presidential election. According to Giuliani's filing in New York, he has between $1 million and $10 million in estimated assets. 
and approximately $153 million in liabilities. The filing shows Giuliani owes the IRS $724,000 in income tax and owes New York State $265,000. He also lists, quote, unknown debts to voting systems companies, Dominion Voting Systems, and Smartmatic USA for suits those organizations brought against him. Also listed is a debt to President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, for an unknown amount related to a September suit the younger Biden brought over an alleged violation of his digital privacy. As defamation is a, quote, intentional tort, Giuliani shouldn't be able to avoid the $148 million defamation judgment. But, according to Goodman, filing for bankruptcy buys Giuliani time to appeal the ruling and be transparent about his finances. The anti-Trump narrative comes from Washington Examiner. Unfortunately for Giuliani, he's just the latest in a long line of people who fought on Trump's behalf and come out the other end with their reputations and lives in shambles. Once beloved by a large swath of the U.S., Giuliani lied and defamed people on Trump's behalf, and Trump left his lawyer high and dry financially and politically. Biden commutes 11 drug sentences and pardons marijuana offenders. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by MSN, Forbes, and ABC News. United States President Joe Biden announced Friday that he would commute the sentences of 11 people serving decades-long sentences for nonviolent drug charges, as well as pardon a larger group of people convicted of federal marijuana possession charges. Explaining its decision to commute the 11 sentences, the White House said some of the individuals were serving life sentences for charges that would be sentenced much less harshly today, such as Early Deacon, who was convicted of cocaine distribution. Some of the commuted sentences reportedly represented disparities in sentencing between crack and powder cocaine, with some legal experts warning that such long prison terms not only don't help public safety, but disproportionately impact black communities. Meanwhile, the marijuana pardons apply to U.S. citizens and permanent residents sentenced for simple possession, attempted simple possession, and simple possession or use of marijuana on federal properties or installations, which was not included in pardons issued by Biden last year. As these pardons only apply to federal convictions, Biden called on state governors to follow his lead and release prisoners convicted for the use or possession of marijuana. Biden last October pardoned thousands of people convicted in federal court for marijuana possession. That pardon, however, excluded convictions for trafficking, marketing, and underage sales. Scott, thanks for laying the facts out for that story. Our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. Biden is writing not only the wrongs of America's past, but laws that he himself helped pass decades ago. The president now understands what the American people have long understood. Black and brown people face disproportionately more convictions and longer sentences than their white counterparts. Hopefully, this is the beginning of the end of a system that ruins the lives and career prospects of people who were put away for harmless infractions. And the Republican narrative from the American mind. While prison reform for nonviolent offenses can certainly be debated, this issue shouldn't be about racism. The real data show that the rate of marijuana dependency, a phenomenon discussed by black intellectuals as far back as W.B. Du Bois and Richard Wright, is far higher among black people than white people. Regarding people in prison today, most of those convicted of so-called nonviolent drug offenses actually pled down from more serious crimes like trafficking or other felonies. Our final nerd narrative for today's podcast comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. It's a nerd narrative that says there's a 4% chance that marijuana will be removed from Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substance Act before the year 2024. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 23rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.